You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And we're here celebrating the penultimate episode of season two. Yes. So next time we release an episode, that will be the final episode of season two. And it will be the first episode of 2016. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. You know what's really crazy? This makes me feel old. People who were born in the year 2000 can get their driver's licenses this next year in 2016. That is really crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I was born in the 80s. That feels like a really long time ago. <laughs> it just boggles my mind. People who were born in 2000 yeah. after Y2K. Yeah. Crazy. Can get their driver's license next year. <laughs> Man. Well, we hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and yes. are looking forward to a very happy new year. We're releasing this on December 30th. You're probably listening to it a little bit later, but I think it's the sixth day of Christmas. 25, 46. Yes. The sixth day of Christmas. What's the What's the gift that comes on the sixth day? Um, Let's see. Five rings and then six... Six geese laying, yeah. Okay. Six geese laying. That's a wonderful Christmas gift. Yeah, I hope that you get some. Sally, geese thank today. you for not getting me <laughs> six geese laying. That'd be. I don't know what I would do with six geese. Yeah, I'm just waiting for ten lords a leaping. I'll send you ten lords. That's the best one, actually. <laughs> ten lords a leaping. I think the best gift is the five golden rings. Five golden rings. Yeah. You can turn around and sell them for a lot of money. <laughs> you have a lot of Perfect. sentimentality <laughs> associated with your gifts. So, yeah, six days of Christmas. So we're halfway done. Do Did you celebrate the 12 days of Christmas growing up? No, I did not. Did you? We did one year or two years, I think. Yeah. How did you celebrate it? So every year growing up, we would open all of our presents on Christmas Day. Okay. But one year, my parents decided that we would open one present a day oh. for all the 12 days of Christmas. Wow. So you got 12 gifts. That's a lot. I did. Yes. But yeah, spread out. That's kind of hard for kids to wait that long. Yeah, I I think we were of mixed minds. It was nice after the Christmas mm-hmm. morning to have stuff for the next 11 days, yeah. but it made Christmas morning a lot less exciting as right, well. Right, right. So. Yeah, I guess it's hard if you're used to one way and then you switch to doing it another way. Right. So I think we went back to doing the Christmas Day thing, but okay. I, I really don't remember actually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of celebrating Christmas for 12 days because the 26th is kind of sad <laughs> i think more people should i mean yeah it is kind of sad to turn on the radio on the 26th and all the no more christmas, christmas music's music. gone yeah so much build up and then it's right. just gone or people who put down their trees on the 26th oh yeah that's so that's sad. crazy remember last year we had to take down our tree on the I don't <laughs> before know, christmas before christmas because it died <laughs> and because so we were bad. leaving town but that was so bad yeah it would have been a huge fire hazard if we had left it up dead so what happened was we went to walmart and saw that they were selling trees for 25 dollars, and they were pretty big trees five six feet so we were thinking wow this is such a great deal but within 24 hours less than that it was turning brown and the yeah pine the, all the, the needles, needles were, were falling, falling off. off it was just way beyond repair it was I, so terrible i had to cut off the bottom of course to um free up the sap uh, or free up the tree from the sap that had dried and caked on there. Right. But it didn't do anything. Yeah, it, it didn't soak up any water. The tree was not absorbing it just water. It seemed like it was maybe dead when we got yeah. it. It was a really sad tree. Yeah, so this year we've had much more success. Yeah, we got a nice fresh tree this year that was... And I've been very diligently watering it. Yes, you have. I have a phone reminder. Yes, all credit <laughs> to you. You have. 
and it looks great still. We're not losing needles. Actually, it's been one of the most easy trees I've ever seen yeah. cleanup wise. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Well, since we're so close to New Year's, we wanted to do a little review of our year of podcasting. Not quite a year. We started in April, I guess. Maybe I forget when we released our first episode, but it was, I think May, it was April. May. Maybe it was May. Okay. So, but it's the end of the calendar year. So we wanted to. And talk almost the about, end of season two. So, right. We have a so, lot of podcasting under our belts. Yes. Yes. And more podcasting to come. This is not the end of Vernacular Podcast. We're announcing our retirement effective <laughs> immediately, actually. Two seasons was great, but I'm moving on to bigger and better things. No, we're sticking to it, but we are going to change things up. But before we talk about that, we'll just kind of review things a little bit. In season one, the idea was that we would bring on one or two people and talk to them about a bunch of different topics. Right. From news to lifestyle and then interviewed them about their life. And that was fun. It was really great. We had some great interviews. Yeah, the format was basically just one large interview for the entire episode. Yeah. And it was really nice because we got to talk about a wide variety of things with the one or two guests that we had on. Yeah, and we had some really fun episodes. I really enjoyed having Ostrid and Aaron on to talk about yeah. their their hop hops farm. That right. was really enlightening. That was cool. <laughs> Didn't know anything about that. And Catherine and Jordan, they stuck around for a while, became our contributors. That was a great episode. Same with Muriel and Joshua and the Bryans. So we've had, we had some really good episodes and people stuck around and joined our team. Longtime listeners know the voices of Muriel, Renault, and Joshua DeGastine, and, and Will, Will Bryan, and Jordan and Catherine Short. Yeah. So it's been really fun to have those folks on as well. And I think we, we built a really good team coming out of season one and season two, we had those contributors on in recurring fashion, but that was part of a new approach. And that was to have multiple guests on in each episode to talk about a variety of topics. Right. right. And I think it's worked out really well. Yeah. It's been, it's been pretty fun too, because you know, the benefit of the first one is you get a really in-depth conversation with one person, but the benefit of the second format is that you have a lot of different conversations with different people and you get right. to know different people through those. So right, right. Uh, I think I've liked them equally. And we have the advantage of being able to tap into people's, if not expert knowledge, then at least their special interest in a particular topic. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been really fun. For season three. We're also going to change things up yet again. Right. <laughs> because we, I guess, get bored easily. <laughs> we like Always variety. trying to improve. Always trying constant iteration, but iteration with variety. Right. So season three is actually going to be very similar to season two, but we're going to be doing something different and it'll be on a trial basis and we'll see how it goes. And so we want feedback. So we do want feedback, but not every episode is going to be the format you're used to. We're going to do some kind of deep dive episodes where we're going to take a single topic, a single issue of the day and really hone in on that and talk to a variety of guests about that single topic. Yes. So previously, we've talked about a category or a theme, and so we had a unifying theme across this episode, and we've talked to different guests about various parts of that theme, but we haven't done the sort of deep dive, singular issue focus that we're thinking about doing in some of these episodes for season three. Right. So we're going to give this a shot and see how it goes. And so we'll be starting this in late January when we're releasing a special episode that showcases this format, and we will tell you more about that the topic, and who we're talking to as we get closer to it. We're very excited about that. Yeah, we hope that you will enjoy it. In the meantime, today we have a very special guest who you'll hear in just a few minutes, and this is Emily Esfahani smith You may have seen her writing in The Atlantic or, or The New York Times or The Wall, Wall Street, Street Journal. Journal. You may know about her upcoming book. If you don't, you are about to. 
Uh, but Emily Asfani Smith uh, joins us to talk about what it is to have a life full of meaning. And why that's different than having a happy life. And we thought this was appropriate, especially for this episode, because as we head into the new year, this is on a lot of people's minds. I think I think the reason that a lot of people have New Year's resolutions is because they're, for some reason, dissatisfied with the life they've been leaving, leading for the last year, and they want to make some sort of change about it. So a lot of times that means going to the gym more frequently, or eating better, or setting aside time every day to do a certain activity, or have a hobby, something like that. And I think the conversation that we have with Emily can, really tie into that. Yeah, and can help you sort of frame the way you think about uh, how to what go into the new year, what is most important, how to have a life full of meaning. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We're sitting here with Emily Esfahani Smith, who is a writer who's working on some very interesting things. And I was trying to figure out how to best uh, introduce her to you, our listeners, uh, because she's done so many different things, but I couldn't find a good way to encapsulate all of it. And I thought, who better to do that than her? So Emily, if you wouldn't mind, in 30 seconds, please tell us about yourself. Well, thanks uh, so much, Zach and Sally, for having me on. It's, it's a real pleasure to be with you guys. Um, so I, uh, I'm an editor and a writer, and I'm currently based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, I, in terms of editing, um, I, I edit a journal of the Hoover Institution called Defining Ideas, which is kind of a policy-oriented publication. And writing-wise, I write for a variety of publications, um, including The New Criterion, The Atlantic, and others about culture and um, social science and relationships and pretty much anything that just kind of catches my interest. And so currently I'm working on a book which is taking up most of my time and it's going to be published next year in 2017 by Random House. The current title uh, is The Power of Meaning and the subtitle is There's More to Life Than Being Happy. So it's kind of about how we lead good lives and um, you know how we find meaning and purpose in life. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, we've followed your articles in The Atlantic and The Times and The Wall Street Journal. And over the past couple of years, you've published articles on love and human relationships and happiness, which sounds like the topic of your book. Um, we just want you to tell us some more about your interest in those topics and how that fits into this book that you're writing. Sure. So, um, so a couple of years ago, I was a master's student at the University of Pennsylvania in a program uh, called positive psychology. And positive psychology is the science of human flourishing. So in college, I studied philosophy and kind of the big question of philosophy is, you know, what is the good life? How do I lead a good life? And positive psychology is taking that question and, and trying to answer it from an empirical perspective. So doing studies and science to figure out, you know, what are the building blocks of a, kind of a good, full, healthy, meaningful life. And um, in that program, one of our professors presented this study on the difference between people living meaningful lives and those leading happy lives. And it was, it, I thought it was a very interesting distinction. I'd never thought of that distinction before. And her findings were fairly provocative. So she says so among them were that people who, um, you know, said that they were leading very happy lives tended to be more self-interested and selfish. You know, when you ask them about their behavior, they said that, you know, they spent more time kind of shopping and buying things for themselves and doing things that were just kind of, you know, 
about themselves than about others versus the people who said they were leading meaningful lives. They weren't, um, they weren't as happy and they weren't kind of as carefree and stress-free as the people leading happy lives. But they, they said that they were much more invested in their community, that when they, you know, did things, they kind of were doing it for the sake of others. And so I just thought that was a really interesting distinction. And, you know, when I started thinking about the people I knew in my life, I realized that, you know, so many of them might not be, you know, super happy all the time, but they're still leading really meaningful lives. And, you know, at the same time, we live in this culture that kind of prioritizes happiness above all. So, you know, every time I log on to some publication online, whether it's the Huffington Post or, you know, this or that blog, they're always trying to tell you, you know, like the shortcuts to happiness and here's how you can be happy and happy this and happy that. And, and here, like in this, in this study was this whole other way of living a good life that was grounded in meaning. And that I thought, you know, well, when people really think about the kind of lives they lead, it seems like what they actually want is to lead a meaningful life, not a happy life. And so that was kind of, that was the inspiration for, for the, for the book. And then, you know, once I, once I had that idea, I, I, I started thinking, well, okay, so if meaning is what is, you know, is what the goalpost really is and not happiness, um, well, what are the building blocks of a meaningful life? And and this is where I kind of, you know, used some of what I learned in, in, in psychology and in philosophy. And I turned to the social science on meaning and to also, you know, some of the philosophical discussions about meaning, reaching back to, you know, people like Aristotle and looking at what they said a meaningful life consists of. And I, I, I kind of, I, you know, there are different people will tell you that, you know, their lives are meaningful for different reasons. But I kind of found that there were four themes that came up again and again in the lives of people who um, were leading meaningful lives. And, and those were, you know, the following. One um, was a sense of belonging. So feeling like you're part of a community, whether it's you're the community at home of your family, a community of, you know, two friends who really value and respect each other, um, your community at work or like a broader community, like a religious community or your neighborhood. And that's really about, you know, like not just having, you know, lots of friends and stuff, but feeling like you're part of something bigger than yourself and that you feel you know, valued and like you matter in the context of that community. Uh, the second was purpose. So having some kind of, you know, long-term goal that your, your life is directed towards. So it could be, you know, it could be like, you know, you know, being a great parent or contributing to the world through your work in some way. And scientists have found that kind of the most meaningful types of purpose have, um, what they call a pro-social orientation. So that means that it's basically, it's contributing to the world in some way. So, you know, if your purpose is like to sit around all day and, you know, rip pieces of paper, that's not really going to be as meaningful as, you know, like starting a charity or something like that. Right. That makes um, sense. So does this relate to um, your article from The Atlantic? I think it was in 2013 about how people who have meaning are givers rather than takers. Yeah, exactly. So that, yeah, that, that's a, that's a, thanks for mentioning that. That was from the same study that I was talking about earlier. So in that study, people like they were asked to self-identify, like, are you more of a giver or are you more of a taker? And people who had meaning were more likely to say that they were givers and people who had happiness are more likely to say that they were takers. So yeah, people who have meaning, they kind of, 
they find a lot of meaning and purpose in giving to others in some way. And it could be as, you know, small as like, you know, making a pie for someone or as big as, you know, you know, like starting some kind of foundation. So yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other, so then the, the, the third pillar is, um, kind of the way that we understand our, our lives. And that tends to be through storytelling. So the stories that we tell about our lives really matter um, for, for meaning. And the, the final pillar is transcendence. So, um, you know, this is kind of where things like religion would fall. But basically, it's, um, it's, it's those moments where we kind of can step outside of our ordinary day-to-day lives and turn, turn the self off and connect to something like much larger than ourselves. And so for a lot of people, that's through religion. For a lot of others, it's through nature, um, you know, music, any of those kinds of, um, you know, forms of like, you know, beauty and, and, you know, awe that we connect with. And so the book is basically, you know, it's making that argument about meaning being important and then kind of unpacking meaning through those four different pillars. That sounds great. So one of your two, your 2013 articles in the Atlantic, I think was called, you would know better than me, but I think it was called, there's more to life than being happy. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting reading that and then hearing you expound on it just now, this whole thesis of yours, it sounds a little bit like, like an inversion of the, of the axiom money doesn't buy happiness because it sounds like you're saying actually money can buy happiness and the people who have the things will say they're happy, but they don't have meaning. Yeah, exactly. So, so as part of what I like did my research was look at the number of people who are happy but don't have meaning, and, um, and you know, like you know, different social scientists have looked at this, and it tend, it, it's actually you know quite a significant amount of people, and so um, you know, so you have to wonder like, well, what kind of happiness is that that doesn't have the backbone of meaning, and and you know, the, all that said, like I don't want to you know, it's not like, me, like a meaningful life is all kind of work and no joy. It's just that um, when people have meaning, happiness tends to follow, but they're not building their lives around chasing and pursuing happiness. They're building their lives around leading a meaningful life, which often means, you know, giving to others and, you know, being part of something bigger than yourself. So I guess someone should have mentioned that to Thomas Jefferson when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And that's, you know, that's another interesting point is that people, um, this is, there's a great book called Happiness, A History, which kind of looks at the idea of happiness from the ancient world onto the present day. And one of the things it talks about is that how during the Enlightenment, um, happiness came to be identified as like a human right. So it used to be that people who, you know, in, in the ancient world, like ancient Greece and also, you know, er, like early Christianity, um, happiness wasn't really considered something that everyone should and ought to have. It was kind of the preserve of the few. Um, and now the idea, like we have this idea in large part, thanks to things like the Declaration of Independence, um, that everyone has like a right to be happy and everyone deserves to be happy. And so it's this, it's an interesting inversion. And some would say that it, it sets people up for false expectations, because if you have the expectation that you're ha- that you should be happy, um, and you're not, then it, you almost feel worse because a you weren't happy to begin with, and b you thought you should be happy, but you're not. Yeah, or it. I guess people can build up the expectation that if happiness is something that we should all have, then that's all I need. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that, yes, yeah, so they think that like, if they, they're having some kind of problem in their lives, that ha- happiness will be the solution, but maybe it's not, maybe, it, maybe there's something else going on. 
Now, for this book, did you have to do research on your own? Were you talking to people about their experiences of happiness versus meaning? Yeah, so I did a lot of, I, de- I definitely did a lot of interviews and um, and reporting and kind of went all over the country talking to people about what makes their lives meaningful. Um, and and so that was, that was a really great part of the process. So like, I, for example, I interviewed one person who, um, and this was for the chapter on on transcendence, who was a former is a former astronaut, and he went into space and um, and had what's known um, experience experience what's known as the overview effect, which is um, kind of a psychological shift that happens in you when you see the Earth from space. And it turns out that quite a lot of astronauts have had this experience that um, all of a sudden, like. You know, they, they see the Earth from space and they realize, you know, how how small and fragile the Earth really is and how interconnected people are. And just seeing kind of the Earth suspended in, in the big black void, as he put it, um, caused this like re- basic reorientation of his values. Um, so he was explaining to me that a lot of astronauts, because it's, it's very you know, it's one of the most elite things that you can do. Um, they're so they're super driven by ambition and achievement and um, kind of other values that are related to, to the self and aggrandizing the self. But when they come back after having experienced the overview effect, after having had this kind of amazing, amazingly meaningful and transcendent experience, they're much more focused on others. And they often come back and devote their lives to charitable causes, which is what this guy this guy's doing. So he was one person I interviewed. Um, and that, that was that, you know, that he, he, he obviously had a great story about meaning. Um, I've also talked to people, um, you know, a former fashion designer in New York, um, who's very successful and now lives out in New Mexico and has kind of started, um, this charity, which is meant to help at risk kids get through high school and go on to college. So people like that as well. Um, I, I spoke to an artist, I spoke to, you know, parents, just trying to get like a broad range of, of people and, and, you know, what makes their lives meaningful. So Emily, help me understand this third pillar that you talked about. I'm really intrigued by it. The, I think you said the way we understand ourselves and our narrative. Yeah. Um, how does that fit into constructing a framework of meaning for someone's life? Yeah, for sure. So I think, so that this kind of has to do with, um, how we, just how we understand ourselves and how we understand like our identity. So identity is, is an, is a really important part of meaning, meaning because, you know, you could be, you could be doing a lot of things that on the surface appear meaningful, like, you know, working in a research lab devoted to like curing cancer, like you have a family, but if you like, if you don't understand yourself, as having, as doing like things that are meaning, as like living a meaningful life, basically, then, um, then it almost like doesn't even matter. And so, so the, the idea behind storytelling is that like, we, we have a lot of experiences in our lives and the point of like the, our narrative is to make sense of those experiences and, and how we make sense of those experiences ends up shaping like what our identity is. So I remember, I didn't write about this in the book, but I talked to this one gentleman who, um, who is a professor today and, you know, he had a long career in, in the diplomatic, you know, in foreign service and was just like a really independent and interesting person and thinker. And he told me a story about how, when he was little, his dad taught him how to swim by, um, you know, they were out on a boat one day and he taught him how to swim by just throwing him 
in the water and kind of forcing him to fend for himself. And so he told me this story and in the con, like he was trying to explain to me by way, you know, by way of telling me the story that, you know, he kind of became like an independent, you know, he, he's an independent person and here's an example of that. And so, so what that, you know, what that tells me is that like his identity, part of his identity is that he's like a pretty independent person. And here's a story that he's telling about his life where he's making sense of himself through that kind of experience. Um, what, you know, so that, that's kind of one example. One of the, you know, probably the most important way that we need to kind of use stories and sense-making to understand ourselves and to, to have meaning is by figuring out how to kind of incorporate the more problematic, um, adverse, traumatic experiences of our lives into our narrative, because those are, those are the places that really, um, things start to break down and we kind of, we question whether life is meaningful or not. So there's a lot of research suggesting that when people kind of, you know, reflect back on their lives and they, ha and they have these kind of negative experiences, if they can't integrate them coherently into their life story, then they, they suffer in a lot of ways and they, they lead lives that, you know, appear to be less meaningful. And so, so the question is like, well, how, how can they integrate them and how can they find meaning through those experiences? And what we know one way is just through the basic act of like sense making. So just, you know, really working through the event and trying to understand like why it happened and, you know, what the consequences have been on our lives ever since. And, and another way is through, which is related is through finding like how, how that experience might've actually made our lives better or deeper or more significant in some ways. And there's a whole phenomenon called post-traumatic growth that, um, that deals with this. So a lot of people have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, right, yeah. you know, but post-traumatic growth is, is, you know, is the opposite of that. It's, it's when, you know, when something really bad happens, a lot of people, more people, in fact, than experience post-traumatic stress disorder, they end up re, re regrouping by actually growing in the aftermath of it. And it's because they, they do these things that are related to meaning. They, they're able to make sense of the event. They usually find some new purpose um, be, be, as a result of the traumatic experience because the traumatic experience really forces them to reconsider you know, their lives and what their lives mean. And so, so one example is um, I, you know, I interviewed this woman who, who you know, she's in her early 20s and she she lost her mother um, very sadly and tragically and unexpectedly. Her mother was hit by a car and so this um, by a bus. So this was a really traumatic experience for her. And up to that point, her she had been um, going to school to study architecture. And you know, part of the reason that you know she, she she was devoting herself to architecture was so that she could you know have a good job and support her support her mother. Um, you know, when she graduated and. But she, she always felt that her true calling was um, in kind of something more culinary. So she, she always wanted to be a whiskey distiller. So after her, her mother died, like she, she ended up pursuing that as a goal. And so it's not like, you know, it's not like she's glad that her mom died, obviously, because she has this new purpose. But as a result of her mother dying, she's able to appreciate that she has this new purpose. And so, so that's just one example. So that's kind of... Um, the, 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 you know, so working through trauma is like a really important way that people use, you know, sense making basically to to lead more meaningful lives. 
So you mentioned this post-traumatic growth as opposed to post-traumatic stress. And of course, I think most of us hear about post-traumatic stress disorder in the context of veterans coming back from war who have seen horrible things, experienced horrible things, and have these awful lingering consequences in the form of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. But what I'm hearing from you, I think, is that as time has gone on, uh, modernity is less able to develop this coherent narrative that gives us meaning. And so I, I almost wonder if our loss of an ability to construct that meaning in a meaningful narrative like you just talked about is actually hurting our ability to have post-traumatic growth and then is uh, leaving us only with the consequence of post-traumatic stress. Yeah, I think that that's interesting. I think that for sure, like the, you know, the meaning void that, you know, that, that's been caused by modernity is, is you know, has all kinds of negative consequences. One is, you know, that people, that people are searching for meaning and and they're not finding it. And, and, you know, when they, when they come back from really terrible experiences, like, you know, having killed people in war or whatever, they don't have like a system of meaning to fall back on. So they're just kind of, um, you know, untethered to anything and and just drifting all by themselves. Um, So I think that definitely you know, I would imagine that that could exacerbate some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, uh, You know, uh, regarding post-traumatic growth, the people who are, for whatever reason, able to grow after the trauma instead of kind of succumb to it and be swallowed up by it, one of the... um, one of the things that they describe, you know, the researchers who've looked at post-traumatic growth, they show, they found that there's kind of five areas of growth that people have after traumatic experiences. And one of them is that their spiritual life deepens. So um, that, that may mean that, you know, if they were religious, they became more so, or if, they, if they're agnostic or not religious, that they just kind of develop a deeper understanding of, of the world and, and how they fit into it. So I think that, you know, you know, we have, people have kind of a yearning for this deeper meaning that, you know, was once satisfied by religion or through some kind of spiritual system. And that, you know, when it's not there, they search for it. And, um, you know, interestingly, as they search for it, they, they almost kind of come back to it as, as the, as researchers have found with post-traumatic growth. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious to know if in your book you explore um, some more of the themes in your article, Meaning is Healthier Than Happiness, um, where you talk about how we we often associate a happy self with a healthy body, and that's kind of marketed to us. If you are healthy, then you're going to be happy. If you're happy, then you're going to be healthy. But you've kind of discovered that meaning is is some has some, has some sort of correlation with healthiness, and i just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks for asking about that. That's one of the, you know, one of the most kind of exciting and groundbreaking discoveries of the science of meaning over the last decade has been this association with health. And it actually, it makes a lot of sense. And, and of the of the kind of pillars of meaning that I talked about, those four pillars, I think um, purpose is the one that they found again and again that kind of does the most work, you could say, when it comes to health. Um, people who who have a strong sense of purpose, they end up like living way longer there. When, when, um, you know, scientists look at their brains after they've, they've died, they find that there's a lot less of the kind of plaque associated with Alzheimer's that's, that's built up in their brains. Um, they have a lot, they have like their, their immune system is stronger, um, according to the different ways that science measures it. And so it's really interesting. And I think one way that, um, 
one way that scientists explain this is that people who um, who have you know a strong sense of purpose have a reason to kind of go on living, and so they're more likely to take better care of themselves. Um, what you know, like whether that means going to the doctors and doing regular checkups and things like that, but they also have like a psychological reason to go on living, which you know somehow is kind of keeping their minds sharper than than people who who don't have a reason. So I probably should have asked this in the beginning, but I think maybe one area where maybe you've already received pushback on this is what the definition of happiness is, because I think yeah. some people have a more robust definition of happiness. And so they might take issue with your claim that we need meaning rather than we need to pursue meaning over happiness. Yeah, um, and I'm wondering if, point. yeah, if perhaps, I mean, you you talked about philosophers that you've kind of fallen back on. Does Aristotle's definition of happiness, is that one of those that you can kind of get behind, <laughs> eudaimonia, and does that have something to do with meaning, or is that too a happiness that we shouldn't be pursuing? Yeah, so definitely. I, I, I write about Aristotle in, in my book and his idea of eudaimonia, and I think, you know, my argument would be that eudaimonia... So just to take a step back, when I talk about happiness, I'm kind of talking about it in our modern understanding of it. And and since since the Enlightenment, I think it's fair to say that there's been kind of a consensus that what happiness is, is, you know, we can define happiness as something like, you know, a, a, you know, a positive affective state. So it's kind of emotional, and it feels good. And, um, and, you know, it, it's, there's a kind of a hedonic sense to it. And, you know, when you, you know, there's been so much research on happiness. And when you look at the research, um, the researchers and how they're measuring happiness, it's usually in terms of these kind of affective hedonic states. So they ask people about their mood, they ask them how they're feeling. Um, and these, these different measures, it turns out, correlate a lot with like the happiness in a hedonic sense. Um, so, so that's kind of, you know, I, I just using, using the definition that the researchers use and that, kind of post-enlightenment philosophers use, that's how I was defining, how I am defining happiness. And I think that when people, you know, are kind of pursuing happiness and when they're doing these different exercises that are meant to be shortcuts to happiness, that is what they're trying to enhance, is that kind of positive affective state. Um, Aristotle, so his idea of eudaimonia, it often gets translated as happiness, but I actually think that it's it's more tied to a meaningful life and a happy life. And he he sets up eudaimonia as as kind of a distinct concept from from hedonia, which is the, the, the kind of happiness that I was talking about. And you know, Aristotle's eudaimonia is not like a feeling or a subjective state. It's more it's more about um, the kind of life that you're living. Like you can have a eudaimonic life, um, and that involves you know kind of, you know, the, the pursuit of excellence and, and, and actualizing your potentials and being involved in your community and, and living a life of virtue, of course. So these are all things that I would say um, kind of fall under the rubric of, of a meaningful life because they're not necessarily identified with, you know, happiness in the way that we understand it. Now, some people might argue that happiness well, if you're really happy, like capital H happiness, maybe like that incorporates meaning into it. And um, at that point, I think it just becomes like, well, you know, if you're defining happiness to include meaning, then, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. But I think that the way our culture and society defines happiness and promotes happiness and markets happiness is in terms of that kind of 
you know, hedonic, hedonic version. And that's what I'm kind of pushing back against a little bit. So going back to your idea of the four pillars here, when you describe them, I kind of pictured it as four columns holding up a building or something. Mm-hmm. But is that how you conceptualize it? Or do you, you see it more as levels of a pyramid? That is that one is more foundational to others. Because I could also see that having an idea of transcendence helps you build a narrative of self, which helps you find a sense of belonging, right? So, yeah. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you kind of conceptualize this if you were to put this in graphical form? I think... Um... You know, that's, that's a great question. I think the way I think, I mean, the pillars are certainly interrelated and you have some things like, you know, say religion that cuts across all of the pillars, you know, religion kind of embeds you into community, gives you opportunities for transcendence, defines kind of a life purpose in terms of, you know, let's just say like service to God or something and gives you a narrative with which to understand yourself in the world. So there's definitely relationships among the pillars, different forms of meaning that can kind of you know, you know, one strengthens the other and things like that. Um, I guess the reason, so I conceptualize, I I wrote about the pillars because I wanted people to see that there are these different kind of, you know, sources of meaning that are within your reach. And I I think about it more as, as like, well, what, what are the pillars that, um, that you particularly lean on as your sources of meaning? Because not everyone's going to have the same the same kinds of of meaning. And, you know, some people might say, oh, well, belonging is really important. People have a need to belong. And if that's not satisfied, then, you know, their lives will be miserable. And I think, and I think that's, that's true. But I think that's true of all the pillars that like, if, if those, if each of the pillars isn't to some extent satisfied in a person, that there will be a sense of kind of incompleteness. Um, That said, I think that some people rely more heavily for meaning on some of the pillars than the others. So for so for one person, maybe the pillar of belonging is really, really important for them for living a meaningful life. And the pillar of storytelling is maybe less important. So they don't really rely on that as much. Um, you know, for me, like, I think that the pillar of transcendence is really important. And if, if I didn't have that, I think that my, you know, my life wouldn't kind of feel as rich as it does. Um, and, you know, maybe for someone who's more introverted, the pillar of belonging isn't quite as important as like the pillar of purpose. So I kind of, um, it's not really a graphical way of understanding it as you ask, but I think that what I'm trying to suggest is that people can lean on the different pillars in different ways and, and, and at different parts of their lives, like maybe in different ways. So, um, for example, like after traumatic experience, maybe that's when sense making and storytelling all of a sudden becomes an important pillar for you. Well, thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Is your book uh, ready for pre-order yet, or do we have to wait longer? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think you have to wait a little bit longer. It's due to come out in in about a year, in January 2017. So um, so maybe next Christmas will be the time to pre-order it. All right, we'll be waiting. We'll definitely pick up a copy. It sounds very interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Emily. Yeah, this has been fascinating. Well, thanks to both of you, and it's been great talking to you about this. Wow, what a great conversation with Emily. That was a lot of fun, and I'm very much looking forward to that book. Yeah, me too. I can't believe we have to wait a year, but... Yeah, unfortunately not available for pre-order yet, as she just mentioned, but when it is available, we will let you know. So we'll keep you posted here at Vernacular Podcast. And we'll have all other details that we do have about her work on our blog. While you're waiting for that book to come out over the next year or before, 
Uh, you should visit our website. Yes, vernacularpodcast.com. On there, you can check out the blog. Each episode that we put out has a blog post to accompany it that has all of the links that uh, reference things that or links that we have referenced in the podcast episodes. It also has a questionnaire that you can fill out if you'd like to be on the next episode of Vernacular. And we would love to have you on the next episode of Vernacular, so please do that. Reach out to us. You can also reach out to us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. Tell let us, us know how much you're liking the podcast. Right. Let us know what you think of the episode. Give us feedback, positive or negative. Or just say hi. Or just join the conversation. Very easy to do. You can also follow us on Twitter. At VernacularPod. And like us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Vernacular Podcast. Before we play our outro song, which we love, if you love it, you should listen to us on our next episode of Vernacular when we talk to Jordan Short and his brother Joshua. They are both involved in the creation of that song, and they are coming out with a new album. They've created a new band, not an album, an EP, but they have created a new band, the two of them, and we are going to be talking to them in January. About so. their band called Father Hands. Father Hands. In the yep. meantime, if you want to preview and check out their music before we talk to them, go to fatherhands.com, just like it sounds. All right. And from both of us here at Vernacular, have a very happy new year. And a Merry Christmas, because Christmas is it's not, not over. over yet. That's true. Yep. All right. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. When I'm by your side Feel I'm better than ever When you're